Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Where is Bruce Shuler? This is episode 7, Speaking of Guns. My name is Graham Crowley and thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. There is some graphic conversation later in the podcast regarding bullet wounds, so please be aware. I will advise when that is about to occur. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Thank you again to those listeners who have contributed to my coffee habit. Greatly appreciated. Recently, I added four photos and a map of the Palmville crime scenes not previously seen to my Facebook page, Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. They are well worth a look if you haven't already seen them, especially with the Zoom feature. You'll find them in the Featured section on the Facebook page. Unfortunately, after examining the photographs, it raised more questions than provided answers for me. The first thing that struck me was how open the country was. The prospector said on a number of occasions they could clearly see Struber and Wilson. Well, wouldn't the opposite also be true? That is, Struber and Wilson would be able to clearly see the prospectors, and the prospector said that they couldn't see each other, which seemed weird. The distance from the track where the Strubers allegedly stopped their ute to the gully where Bruce Shuler was seen also surprised me. Would Diane have been able to hear Red Dog bark over the sound of the diesel engine at that distance, sitting in a four-wheel drive? Was any testing done to consider that? There is plenty of vision of the four-wheel drive being driven up and down the track in reenactments by police. It would not have been that hard, I suggest, to put Red Dog in the gully and have her bark. I decided to give George Wilson a call, sister to Diane Wilson, regarding the barking dog as I know he is very familiar with that part of Palmerville. Hello, Graham. How you going, George? Yeah, not bad. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Where Diane allegedly shot at Bruce Shuler? Yes. You've been there. Yes, I have been there many a times, yes. In the photos I put on Facebook the other day, 
I was surprised at the distance from the track where the four-wheel drive would have pulled up. Yes. To the edge of the um, land. That's right. And down into the gully. Yep. And it occurred to me, if Diane is in a four-wheel drive ute driving along with the engine revving, would she actually hear a dog barking from that distance? I don't believe she would have myself because with the vehicle running and the, the dog would have to come out, come out up, like I'm up and you see the dog moving. Yep. The barking of the dog you wouldn't hear because it blends in with the sound of the vehicle as well. But then you had the tyre noise. Because yep. up in that country you get a lot of tyre noise like on the gravel. You can actually hear the gravel when, when you hear a vehicle come. You can hear the drone of the engine, but you hear the tyres running on the gravel. Yeah. So there's a lot of gravel noise. You can actually hear that more so than the engine, really. Yeah. 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 All right. Listen, um, that'll probably do, George, I think. Uh, just a short, quick chat. Yeah, all right then. No worries. If it suits you fine, that's, that's okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, all right. I'll let you get back to enjoying your day off. Okay, then. No worries. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, George. See ya. See ya. Bye. Bruce Shuler chose to run north instead of south along the gully. He had just been prospecting to the south. He knew that was the way to the river and his car. That was the direction they had come from, after all. That was the direction to run to safety, for escape. He hadn't ever been north, although forensic evidence found at the second crime scene would definitely suggest otherwise. He apparently had no idea what was up there, and he would be smart enough to realise his fellow prospectors, his friends, his amigos, would also run to safety. Common sense, really. Let's get to the car and get out of here. And the position of the mining plant to the right-hand side of the road is also of interest. There seemed to be some confusion initially as to where the prospectors were in relation to that mining equipment. And had Shula run south, the Strubers would have had to turn their car around to pursue him. And what about the height of the ridgelines above the gully? providing ultimate protection and cover. How did the Strubers know where he ran to? They certainly would not have been able to see him. And as you heard in Episode 5, Ghost Evidence, the Struber vehicle did not drive to the second crime scene. It turned around and went back to the homestead, not far after leaving Crime Scene 1. According to the legal minds, you can infer the Strubers went to the second crime scene, apparently. That is a concept I struggle with, to be honest. The lack of physical evidence, blood, DNA and other forensic evidence in this case is troubling, as you have heard. So many questions. I hate leaving questions unanswered, hanging around. Do you? In the last episode, I spoke with retired Queensland solicitor of more than 50 years' experience, Jeff Johnson. I asked him the following question, amongst others, of course. And here I am replaying my question and his answer, so we are all on the same page. Can I ask you this? On what evidence did the DPP prosecute Struber and Wilson, (laughs) in your view? Mate, I think it was the missing firearms. I really think that was a crucial factor in this. You know, and without rational explanation for the missing firearms, meant quite clearly it appears that there were shots fired. Well... That was the evidence. Uh, That evidence came from the prospectors, of course, but the disappearance of Bruce Shuler, the 
absence of any body, the hearing of shots fired, and most importantly, guns disappearing that may well have been used in the shooting seem to me to be the evidence that went to conviction. There was a .357 handgun missing, along with a .22 bolt-action rifle and a .22 lever-action rifle. So the Crown narrative had to fit with those caliber weapons, which may explain why the DPP did not ask the witnesses if they knew the caliber or type of weapons they heard discharge. It doesn't explain, though, why the defence counsels barely raised the subject. And then the coroner found a shotgun was the weapon used in the murders. And regarding the coroner's findings, I am lost to how she concluded a shotgun was the killing weapon. It must have been something in the report prepared by the police. Why didn't that find its way to the trial, I asked myself. And it begs the question, why didn't Struber dispose of his only shotgun if that was the weapon used in the murder, as well as the thirty thirty rifle he owned, if that was the weapon used in the murder? Yet, he disposed of two weapons no one said they heard fired. Does anyone else find that troubling? Call me old school, tell me I'm wrong. I believe the calibre of weapons the witnesses say they heard is extremely relevant, not just in this case, but in any investigation. Not only to the credibility of the witnesses, but as to what actually happened in the gully on that July morning in 2012. And more importantly, what evidence the jury did and did not hear. It reminds me of what happened in the Leanne Holland murder, which occurred in 1991. Fast forward to 2010, almost 20 years later. By then, Graham Stafford had served 15 years in prison and had had his conviction for murder quashed. In 2010, radio announcer Greg Carey was discussing the case on Radio 4BC and fielding calls from listeners. The trial jury foreman, who with the other jurors found Graham Stafford guilty, called in. His name was Peter Hobbs, also affectionately known as Bluey. He was livid, he told Greg Carey. Why? To paraphrase, he said the jury did not hear all the facts and how were they expected to make an informed decision without knowing all the facts. Sound familiar? I said basically the same thing in Episode 5, Ghost Evidence, and Episode 6, when I spoke with Jeff Johnson. That phone call was the start of an extraordinary friendship between Bluey Hobbs and Graham Stafford. A friendship that lasted until Bluey's death from cancer in 2018. Bluey also became firm friends with radio announcer Greg Carey, and I received a Christmas greeting as well each and every year from Bluey until his death. Rest in peace, old mate. If you are interested in finding out more about that case, it is covered in the podcast I broadcast with mate Jamie Pultz. The podcast is called Who Killed Leanne Holland? Over 22 episodes. And on Wednesday, 14 February 2024, Valentine's Day, Channel 9 program Under Investigation is broadcasting a one-hour episode on that very case. 32 years after the murder, and the story will just not go away. For many, many valid reasons. The main one being, justice has not been done. Nor has it seen to be done. Watch out for it.
I'll see if I can put a link to the episode on my Facebook page when it's out. I've been fortunate to recently speak with a nationally recognised ballistics expert and gain some of his insight into this case. To do that, I felt it was important to rehash what was covered in Episode 4, An Inconvenient Truth, where I discussed the type of firearms the Strubers used to murder Bruce Schuller. Apologies if you feel I'm repeating myself. I covered it again to enable you to better understand what ballistic expert Alex has to say on the evidence. Just to recap, Daniel Bidner told police on the phone on the Monday night, the same night Bruce Shuler disappeared, he heard a shotgun discharge. In his statement to police the next day, he again said he heard a shotgun discharge. He did not describe the sound of the second gunshot. Can we conclude he believed it was a shotgun he heard again? Let me say this. If Bidner heard a distinctly different sound of weapon on the second shot, I would have expected him to put that in his statement. You know, something like, the second gunshot was completely different to the first. He didn't, nor did he mention it in the reenactment. Bidner had owned firearms for at least 20 years at that time. He had used weapons and been around people who had used weapons. It could be said he was in an excellent position to describe the weapon he heard. At trial, in response to a question where he described the weapon as a shotgun to Detective O'Dwyer on the night of the 9th, he replied the following. These are his words, but not his voice. Maybe I did, only through the sound. When asked in cross-examination, he replied the following. Again, these are his words, but not his voice. I'd say that at one stage because I thought the boom sounded like a shotgun. I only said that out of the what the sound of the gun was. But I'm no expert on guns. I'm just, it was a very loud boom. Bidner had an opportunity to say something like, my ears were ringing from the shot, just as Tremaine Anderson had said. But he didn't. He said it was a shotgun. And as you may recall, Bidner told retired law policeman Bob Hayden in 2019, he now believed the firearm he heard was a 3030. The one Diane always carried, he said. Interesting that he never made that claim at trial. And once again, it displayed his considerable experience with weapons. He didn't say to Bob Hayden, I don't know what sort of weapon it was. It was just a loud noise. He said it was a 3030. So he knew what a 3030 sounded like. And obviously, he knew what a shotgun sounded like. But you will recall at trial, he introduced, for the first time, that he saw Diane load the weapon in a downward and upward movement, something that was not mentioned in his phone calls and interviews with police, not mentioned in his statement, not given in evidence at the committal. And what did Tremaine Anderson have to say about the type of weapon used? You may recall this comment from episode four. These are his words, but not his voice. I heard the car stop, and it would have been about two minutes since I saw it. I then heard a loud shot. It sounded like a high-powered rifle. It was probably a 30-30, which is what I've seen Diane with. The following is taken from Anderson's reenactment with police. These are his words and his voice. The content has been edited to shorten the length of it. Just run through through it. You've crouched. Yep. And what's the next thing you've heard or seen? Well, I heard the car stop. Mm-hmm. 
that's pretty much when I've sort of stopped in here, or yeah. just after it stopped, uh, just before it stopped, sorry. So I'm listening now. The next minute, um, a loud, uh, high-powered rifle shot. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Did you hear anything else besides the car stopping and the rifle shot after after you stopped here? No, well, my ears are ringing from the rifle shot. <laughs> yep, okay. How do you know it was a rifle shot? Oh, definitely a high-powered rifle. I've, I've been, you know, growing up on the cattle stations and on the land all my life. It definitely wasn't a shotgun or anything like that. She was a high-powered rifle. Um, I know for a fact after previous altercations with uh, Stephen Struber, uh, one weapon of choice he used on me once was, a, well, his wife pot levelled at me, was a 30-30 lever action. And the only other time that he ever used a shotgun. Yeah, okay, that's all right. We're just yep. talking about what you actually heard yep, on yep, that day. definitely a high-powered okay. rifle. Okay, so you've heard that. Yep. Has there been any other noise after it? No. Okay. No. So when you got to that position, how long were you there before you heard the second shot? Um, well, it would have been about, yeah, it would have been about 15 minutes, something like that, I presume, 15, 20 minutes or something, maybe before the vehicles then started up, proceeded to go further up the road. It stopped, then I've heard another shot again ring out. High-powered shot, and it seemed to me the direction of the bullet was shot upstream somewhere. This one seemed to be shot close by, like close. Mm -hmm. This one seemed, I thought I heard the bullet travel, you know. Okay. And what about Prospector Groth? You may recall he had this to say in episode four. These are his words, but not his voice. Within a minute or two, I heard a rifle shot. It sounded like a large-caliber rifle to me, and it sounded like it was in the air and not into the ground. I'm a registered weapons license holder, and I have been a recreational shooter for a long time. The noise it made was not muffled. It was clear and very loud. There is no way I could have been confused. It definitely was a high-powered rifle. And this... In paragraph 22 of my statement, dated 10th of July 2012, I said that the gunshot noise I heard was in the air and not in the ground. I said this because just being around rifles a little bit, just the sound, it sounded clear, the shot. It didn't sound like it had hit anything, like the ground, I suppose, you would hear a thud. After the second gunshot, when I was still moving, I remember smelling smoke. I would have smelt it maybe 30 seconds after the second shot. It smelt like gun smoke like from a fired rifle. The smell of like burnt powder. I've smelt it before when using firearms for shooting pigs, dingoes and that. You can perhaps begin to understand why the DPP were not keen to have that evidence before the jury. Throw into the mix, Diane waiting up to four minutes before pulling the trigger, and no physical or forensic evidence to show Bruce Schuler was ever at crime scene one. That evidence would have opened Pandora's box. Was the jury entitled to hear that conflicting evidence, that confusion of all three witnesses, to enable them to make an accurate finding? I say very strongly, yes. Would it have made a difference to the verdict? I will not speculate. There was more than enough of that in that trial. Can we conclude at least one of the prospectors was mistaken? Or perhaps even two? And for both firearm discharges? I think that is one conclusion that could be reached. Many listeners may know what a shotgun, a 30-30, a .22 rifle, 
and a .357 handgun sound like when they are fired. But I expect many listeners would not know the difference between the sounds these weapons make. I have recorded the sounds of all those weapons, courtesy of YouTube. I have placed the sound recordings at the end of the episode, not here, so those listeners who choose not to listen can simply switch off. I'm not suggesting for a moment you can draw any conclusions from listening to the sound bites. I have added them purely for educational purposes and to assist in understanding the conflicting evidence of the witnesses. And as you heard, I recently spoke with Alex Christick, a ballistics expert, and asked his opinion on matters involved in this case. Please be aware that during that discussion, there are comments on what injuries could occur from being shot. Hello. Alex. How are you going? Graham Crowley. How are you doing, mate? Good. I'm just on my way to, uh, to pull up so I can talk to you in peace, and I'm just in a bit of traffic at the moment, but uh, I'm happy to kick off any time you are. Alex, uh, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. I understand David Richardson, television journalist and producer, has briefed you on this case, so you have some background to go by, yeah? Look, I do. Very detailed, but there's a, I've got enough material to get a basic understanding of what went on. Okay. Can you give the listener a brief outline on your background and experience, please, Alex, who you are and what you've done? Well, my name's Alex Christick. I currently uh, run a ballistic testing laboratory in Melbourne, amongst other things. I'm a retired Victoria Police uh, detective uh, senior sergeant uh, as a detective, as an investigator and a manager and uh, controller of investigators across a broad spectrum of scenarios from you know, divisional CIB work right through to crime squads and uh, task force uh, work. Okay. So I've got a fairly good handle on uh, what goes on as far as investigations are concerned. I've also, I was also uh, on the directing staff of the Victoria Police Detective Training School for a while, so I've got a fairly good handle on investigations and I've also got a, a fairly good handle on ballistics. With regards to my expertise on firearms, that covers a broad spectrum both within my service as a member of the police force in Victoria and as a, uh, as a professional hunter and shooter and also as a, a NATA-accredited laboratory uh, owner. Thanks for that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What emphasis or significance would you place on the type of firearm heard by a witness in a murder investigation? 
it's very difficult to draw absolute conclusions based on what somebody may or may not have heard uh, because of the variables that are involved and all of the relevant circumstances at the time. You know, atmospheric conditions, the type of firearm, the distance from, um, you know, from the actual firing of the shot to uh, where the witness may have been, what the circumstances of the witness were. Was he sitting inside a vehicle? Was he outside? What's the witness's experience with regards to what firearms sound like in given scenarios? You know, there's numerous different uh, scenarios that are open and uh, any one of those uh, could impact on uh, on that witness's evidence. Do you consider there's any fundamental difference between the sound a .22 rifle makes and a .30-30 rifle? If they're fired in, in the same circumstances or in the same sort of scenario, the .22 rimfire round, even a, what they would refer to as a high-velocity round, uh, is nowhere near as loud as a, a centrefire rifle, which is a .30-30 Winchester round. You know? So you get, you get a, a significant sonic boom with a centrefire rifle, such as the thirty thirty, and a, a far less significant report coming from the twenty two rimfire. Okay. What about the difference between a thirty thirty rifle and a shotgun? How would you describe the the differences between those? Look, it's along similar lines to the twenty two and the um, and the centrefire rifle. A shotgun, of course, is as a general proposition louder than a, than a 22 rimfire firing. But you, you need to understand that the, the velocity of the shot or the projectile leaving the shotgun is not much over the speed of sound, which is you know 1120 feet per second, give or take. Uh, where a rifle round, a centrefire rifle round, is easily twice that speed, so you can measure it. As far as your noise or your reports concerned, you've got you know, projectiles and gases uh, breaching the speed of sound by twice. They're going Mach two in the thirty thirty, where in the shotgun they're sort of fairly close, just to one level of supersonic speed. So, centerfire rifle or the thirty thirty is significantly louder than the shotgun in the same sort of circumstances. If that makes any sense. No, well, it makes sense to me. I just hope the listener can understand what you've said. Basically, the thirty thirty makes a hell of a bigger bang than the shotgun does if they're fired in the same area. In the same, same circumstances, time. yeah. What about the difference between a thirty thirty rifle and a .357 Magnum handgun? Can you comment on that? Look, it's very much along similar lines to the shotgun and the thirty thirty rifle. You've got to remember, a three five seven Magnum handgun is just a handgun round. It's along you know, towards a more powerful end of things. But it's, it's just a 38 special with an, it's an extra tenth of an inch longer. Uh, the projectiles are about the same weight. The Magnum round propels a projectile a little bit faster, which gives you a louder blast, but nowhere near as loud as the 30-30 in the same circumstances. It, it also depends on the weapon system that, that the projectile, the 357 Magnum projectile round is being fired in. Like in, in a revolver, things are fairly noisy because you've got, you know, gases leaking all over the place. Where in, uh, a semi-automatic pistol or, or some similar-like weapon, you're going to get a different sound or a different report. Sure. Would you consider there's a significant difference in firearm sound if the person who hears the weapon discharge is 50 metres away, 100 metres away, 300 metres away? Yeah, of course. Uh, and it also depends on where he is in relation to the firing of the shot. It also depends on, you know, uh, what the person's hearing's like, you know, and the circumstances of the shot. If the shot's fired, say, into the ground, 
50 metres away with any other, even a, a centre-fire rifle. It's nowhere near as loud as a shot that's fired out across open air where the sound gets an opportunity to um, you know, directly travel to the ear. There will be variation. Obviously, the closer the person is to the muzzle of the firearm when it's fired, the louder the perceived noise will be. Sure. Actually, that raises an interesting um, situation because one of the prospectors said he was around 200 metres away when he heard the first shot, which he described as a high-powered rifle, okay? And he said that shot was fired into the air. He said he had a long association with weapons, owned a number of weapons for a number of years, did a lot of shooting, and he was very confident that the round was fired into the air as opposed to fired into the ground, say. So much so that uh, three months later, he provided a second statement to police and he firmly stated the same situation again, that he believed it was fired into the air. Can you comment on that? It's difficult to comment on somebody's beliefs, not having the benefit of actually hearing the shots. But if this guy has qualified himself as, you know, in inverted commas, an expert through experience in using similar weapon systems in various scenarios, the court was satisfied that the person's uh, testimony was uh, to that level. Yeah, for sure. But, um, you know, you, you need to know who this guy was and what the, what his understanding was. And all, all of this stuff would be tested in a court by during cross-examination. And uh, if there was any uh, cracks in his yarn, a good barrister would be able to pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah. Do you think, would it be possible or not, for him to reach a conclusion that he believed it was fired into the air? Well, it's possible, of course, but uh, whether or not um, you know, his, his conclusion was accurate in all of the circumstances, that's another matter. Yeah. And the same witness said that from around 300 metres away, he smelt gunpowder after the second high-powered shot was heard. Can you comment on that? Well, 300 metres is a long way uh, to pick up an odour of burnt um, gases or you know, what you refer to as gunpowder. In my view, it's not likely, but possible. Can you tell the direction from which a shot is generally fired? And that also depends on the circumstances. If you're on flat ground without you know, the opportunity for sound to bounce off um, you know, the terrain or off you know, walls, buildings, etc., they get a fair idea of the direction. If you're in... In different circumstances, if you're in a gully or if you're, you know, inside a building or if there are a lot of buildings there, sometimes it's difficult to pick the actual where the shot is due to echoing, etc. Mm. Okay. Just want to discuss with you shooting at a person from around 50 to 80 metres away with a, firstly with a rifle and uh, then with a shotgun. And if you can just, I know that's difficult, but if you can just give me your general thoughts on that. We'll probably kick off with a, uh, with a shotgun scenario first. 50 to 80 metres is a long way to uh, effectively use a shotgun uh, if your intent was to uh, to kill a person, especially if you're using shot. Depending on the size of the shot, which is the projectile, a, shot, a shotgun doesn't fire, as a general proposition, doesn't fire one projectile unless you're using what they call solid slugs. If you're using, say, something that you would use on, say, to shoot feral pigs with, like an SG or an SSG round, which gives you a pellet approximately, you know, 32 to 9 millimetres in size, and there's nine pellets in the gun, 
at 50 metres, you're not likely to be hit by all of the pellets. If one pellet hits you or hits the human, there's a good chance that they could cause death. Those ranges are fairly extreme to effectively use a shotgun. Shotguns are designed in that context for shooting uh, you know, large creatures like humans. They're designed to shoot people you know, out to about 15 metres. Anything further than that, they're not particularly effective. Right. You know, but remember the fact that if one of those projectiles hits you it well in excess of two or three hundred metres, it's quite capable of killing you. The thing is, it needs to hit you before it um, sure. can kill you, you know. A rifle's a different kettle of fish. You know, uh, f- 50 to 80 metres uh, using a centrefire rifle is not a long way. And a projectile from a centrefire rifle, or a high, what you would refer to as a high-powered rifle, is quite capable, even a, a smaller calibre, is quite capable of killing humans. Uh, 22 calibre over that distance? Uh, similar sort of scenario. They're quite capable of causing death or serious injury you know, at 50 to 80 metres. But not, they're not a particularly effective or a particularly efficacious round to use on humans if your goal is to kill someone. You know? They're a slow-moving bullet. Uh, they're a very small bullet, so they need to hit vital areas in order to bring you know, to achieve the desired result. And the, the way bullets work, uh, in high-powered rifles, a high-velocity bullet develops a hydrostatic shock. And basically, when it does come into contact with human flesh or any other flesh, it causes significant disruption via a permanent and a temporary wound cavity. So uh, whatever it hits, it, it damages and destroys. But anything in the immediate vicinity of that area also ruptures and gets damaged while the bullet, not just by the bullet, but by the, the force of the bullet actually you know, coming in contact with the dispersion of energy, coming into contact with um, with the, the human or animal, where um, a shotgun pellet or a pistol round or a, a 22 rimfire round travelling at relatively low velocities will only generally crush and destroy things that it actually comes into contact with, if that makes any sense yeah, to you. Sure, I understand. On this scenario, on the Crown scenario in this murder case, there were two shots fired at two different locations. And I'll talk about crime scene one was uh, a .22 rifle. And I'm guessing that the bullet did not hit the victim based on the fact that there was no evidence at crime scene one that he was even there. There was no physical evidence. There was no forensic evidence. There was no DNA. There was no blood. There was no disturbed earth, there was no blood trail, um, nothing. Do you think it would be possible to wound someone and not leave any evidence? It's possible, but um, it's very difficult to tell in, in any given scenario. People think that if somebody's actually shot, there's going to automatically going to be significant bleeding. That's not always the case, especially when you if you if the weapon is a you know sort of relatively low caliber thing like a 22 rimfire human skin is very pliable and stretches a lot so the bullet can go in and the skin closes in behind the projectile and in many cases there's no blood comes out whatsoever and the bullet doesn't go out the other way you know it stays within the, it stays within the the body and there isn't any bleeding depending on what the person's wearing where the bullet comes into contact with the body there's just a there's a, a lot of variables that are involved that could indicate whether or not there's been a uh, bullet strike on a human. And it is quite possible for there to be no blood or no other material present at a location where somebody's been shot. But uh, having said that, 
generally if someone's been shot, there'll be uh, people, humans react to being shot in different ways to what animals do generally. And uh, there'd be some sort of disturbance, I would imagine, in any given circumstance. The reason people fall over when they're shot is because the first reason is I think they should because of the way that they've been conditioned. And the second reason is that that's severely injured. They physically can't stand up. And uh, many times when somebody is shot, they, they, they fall over because they because of the psychological issue that's involved in being shot. Sure. Okay. Because on the, the Crown case in this particular scenario, after the first shot, he then ran about 140 metres to what was called the second crime scene. The police did a shoulder-to-shoulder search from crime scene one to crime scene two. There was no blood. There was no discarded items. There was no disturbed earth. There was zero, really, to say that he had ever been there, as I said. When you get to the second crime scene, there were two small burnt patches of grass and the victim's DNA on about uh, four items found at that crime scene and uh, police recovered about three drops of blood. Can you comment on that? Well, you know, three drops of blood, the DNA, there's a lot of scenarios that are open to you there. Yeah, you know. yeah, you know, yeah. If it's three drops of blood tends to indicate perhaps that's, he may have pulled up or stopped at that area uh, after he'd been shot, if that's the, if that's the scenario the police have put up. Mm. Um, and generally what happens if somebody is shot, they, you know, if they sprint or run away from the scene, you know, their heart rate increases, uh, they move around a lot, which could you know, stir up or cause the wound to open a bit further. Those drops of blood you know, may well be found where that person's pulled up. Where the DNA comes from, uh, is it from the drops of blood or is it from other material that may have been left at the site, you know, saliva, other bodily fluids, hair, skin, you know, it's... Yeah. It, there's a lot of variables that are involved yeah. there. Well, there was his DNA was found on a um, film canister, on a uh, burnt match, on a piece of twine. That's just off the top of my head. Yeah. There are things that he may have touched or things that he may have come into contact with at some time. You know, it's mm-hmm. a matter for the police to prove uh, when and where that occurred. Yeah. The other thing was on the police case, he was shot with a .357 Magnum at that location. Would you expect to see more physical evidence or more blood or DNA at a crime scene like that with a 357? Yeah, as I, say, as I said earlier, you know, there's a fairly good chance that even if you were shot at close range with a 357 Magnum, there, there may not have been any material exuding from the body. But, and then again, there may have been significant material come out of the body. You know, it uh, depends on the distance of the shooting, uh, the orientation of the body, where the body was, or where, where he was at the time he was shot. 357 Magnum, you know, in any given scenario, is a fairly powerful round to shoot somebody at close range with. So I would imagine if it was a headshot, I would expect to see, you know, a, a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of material, biological material that would have, may have exited uh, the, the wound, exited the head, in, you know, in, involved, you know, including obviously blood, perhaps bone fragments, skin, uh, brain matter and things like that. You know. mm, yeah. But that may not have happened. You know, he may not have been shot through the head. Well, that's right. We we don't know because the body was never recovered. It does make it difficult. Really, we're only speculating on what may may not have happened. We don't we don't know what type of projectiles were used in the gun. We don't know whether or not they were handloads, whether they were 
they're slow velocity projectiles, whether they're high velocity projectiles. There's, there's just a lot of variables that we're not aware of. There was a lot of speculation in this case. Um, one issue that surprised me was there was no yelling, screaming, calling out at all, which I don't know. Do you have any experience with that? I would have expected that there would have been some sort of verbal outrage, maybe. Well, usually if someone's shot and the wound's not fatal, they'll um, put on a bit of a show as far as making noise is concerned, you know. It's like when you, if you hit yourself on the thumb with a hammer, you know, yeah. there's usually, there's usually a, you know, accompanying verbalisation. Yeah. We're, we're, specula- we're speculating. Yeah, we're speculating. <laughs> yep, back to speculating. But the fact is a guy is said to have run over 100 metres after he'd been shot. We're speculating with that as well. But you're asking me how long's a piece of string, it's pretty hard to comment on it, I think. Mm. There's a lot of conclusions being drawn in this case on based on not much evidence, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's fairly sketchy. That about covers it, I think, Alex. All right. I appreciate your time and... Uh, and thank you for your assistance and your input. You're well qualified to make comment on all those matters, I believe. Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what sort of feedback you get from your listeners. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen a fair bit of this sort of stuff over the years, and there's not two that are the same. There's always, there's always some quirky something out of left field, you know, happens that, uh, that you're not aware of. Yeah. But uh, I'd say once you get all of all the relevant material, it, some of these pieces of the puzzle might come together. That's my thoughts too. So, yes, we, uh, we might be able to clarify a lot of that once the material becomes available. Yeah, for sure. All right, Alex, nice talking to you. Have a great day, mate. Cheers. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I trust that has given you some further insight into this case. For me, it raises more questions and provides answers. It reinforces for me the numerous problems with this case. As there is no body, we do not know if Bruce was even murdered by a firearm. Just because there were two shots fired, it is, my opinion anyway, a long bow to draw to say he was shot, particularly when the existing forensic evidence does not support that conclusion. Pure speculation, really. Hopefully, along the way, somewhere, we can gain some more answers. It is my firm view a full coronial inquest is required to get to the facts of the case. And a reward would not go astray either. I'm confident there are people out there withholding evidence in this case. A reward may incentivise them to step up. I have previously appealed to their morality, but that fell on deaf ears. If you have questions, information or comments, you can contact me at my email, graham5353 at live.com. There are two Facebook pages you can refer to, Justice for Bruce Shuler and Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story and make it visible to others who follow true crime podcasts or may have an interest in the case. Just go to the podcast app on your phone, open this podcast and scroll down to review. The podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music by Janet G. 
If you like the podcast, you can support me for the one-off cost of a cup of coffee by transferring funds to Commonwealth Bank, BSB 064180, account 1006-4508. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. And as I mentioned, here are the recordings of various types of weapons. In some cases, I have recorded the sounds of a weapon from more than one video to help you understand how the sound can vary. The first one is a shotgun discharging. This next one is a 30-30 rifle. The next sound you hear is a .22 rifle being fired. And lastly, a .357 handgun. Thanks again for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.